Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Dropping by the studio in New York City, I'm pleased to say, is John Rydig, RDQ Economics' chief economist and founding partner. Uh, good morning to you, John. 8.30, that GDP print comes. What's the guide? Uh, well, our view is this number is going to come in around 3.5%. But I think the thing, number to focus on within the report is how strong the capital spending numbers are. And that is going to be the driver uh, as we go forward. And I think it's going to be a fairly uh, solid uh, uh, number on uh, business equipment spending, which is key for productivity growth going forward and raising the potential GDP growth rate rather than just the cyclical GDP growth rate. Then we've got these really noisy aspects like inventories and the impact of net net exports. What are you expecting there, John? Well, the trade deficit is going to continue to widen. And uh, we we had something of a bit of an artificial narrowing in the second quarter on um, amongst other things, high soybean uh, exports uh, in an attempt to uh, beat the uh, tariffs. Um, but as we uh, so that trade gap's going to widen because we've got a strong economy that's close to full employment. And if we're going to have a capital spending boom, where are we going to get the capital equipment from? The U.S. actually runs a deficit now uh, on capital goods because uh, so as we invest more in the U.S. economy in the short run, that deficit's going to widen. And I think it's going to be a little bit offset by uh, higher inventories. But that's why we like to put aside those swing factors and focus on what one might say in uh, e- e- economic GDP identity terms, C plus I, consumer spending plus fixed investment spending. Um, uh, and that, to me, is the number to uh, keep an eye on as we uh, it both in the past and go forward as we try and look through the noise uh, and, and get a better handle on, uh, on underlying growth. Neil Kashkari of the Minneapolis Fed out with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal saying the Fed should take a pause. What's the argument against that now? Well, I think the argument against it is where we are in the economy. You know, it's important to remember that we have growth rates and the growth rates have been rising and we have levels of the economy and the level of the economy relative to its potential is pretty high. So the Fed's achieving its objectives. We have a 2% inflation rate. We have full employment possible. And the trajectory is to strong employment growth still and a declining unemployment rate. So we, the Fed is going to seek to normalize or renormalize interest rates. And you do that when the economy is strong, not, not when the economy is weak. So to take a pause, the problem then yeah. comes is how do you restart if you need to restart? Did, did Neil Kashkari, John, thanks so much for mentioning that op-ed, but did Neil Kashkari not study his data-dependent history and that every central bank at all times is ex-post? They have to wait to see two percent gdp before they pause right well i i i think the fed it, absolutely data dependent but there's you know there's a third element too which is the financial stability element now we were at levels of the equity market that maybe <clears throat> right. three four five years ago we wouldn't have imagined that we would have gotten this far and and everything's worrying about the delta from the um you know from the high but we have to look at the high we're coming from and we also have to look at you, you know Joe Feldman in your the TV show earlier was, was talking about Amazon and what's you know you're talking about the misses and he's talking about but yeah but look at the absolute numbers of revenue growth look at the right. absolute number of profit growth 
turn to you know one of my favorite functions on Bloomberg, EA Go, which gives you the earnings analyst yeah. analysis. Two hundred and thirty companies on the S and P five hundred have reported better than eight percent revenue growth, better than twenty two percent earnings growth. We have to remember, right? If it's a little better or a little worse, we also have to remember to look at the absolute magnitudes. And those magnitudes are strong. And that's an environment in which I think monetary policy and interest rates should be renormalized. And John, I did a a 17-year regression of Amazon, and we're above the trend. No question about that. But you'd be shocked how we're not that far above the trend. Negative nine percent in the pre-market. Yeah, it's it's a on, bear market on, on a for, company that from the big, height. On a company that big, that's real money. Yeah. So, John, let's talk about that because we had several Federal Reserve officials, including, I believe, Loretta Mesta and Rich Clarida, came out this week discussing the market and saying that essentially it won't inflict the pain on the economy that some people think. Are you in that camp? Uh, I am because the economy hasn't grown into the level of the market, as it were, in, from the consumer demand side. So like one of the points that, that has been made by uh, uh, Vice Chair yesterday was the savings rate. Now, the savings rate turns out it's double what we thought the savings rate was on the numbers mentioned, m- measured last year by, you know, by the uh, GDP report. So when an, the equity market declines and, and that reduces wealth, that impacts spending if people feel they're going to be short of their financial objectives. Now, I, I, I think that the equity market would have to go down a long way from here to put that phenomenon into play, the idea, well, we need to raise the savings rate. It turns out you know, the savings rate is uh, at a much higher level than we, than we previously thought. So I, I don't think that the equity market feeds back uh, onto the real economy here. And I do think that the Fed's right, that the underlying fundamentals of the economy right now are, are quite strong. And, uh, you know, we're just not used to volatility. We have some market volatility here. Can we do the fun bit now? Yeah, absolutely. Can we do the fun bit? I missed this on TV. Did you miss this? I didn't see That's this That's because you were preparing for one of your other properties. So John Riding is a massive Preston North End fan. Explain it to our American audience. Do you want to explain that to our American audience, John? Because I can't explain it to them. Well, well, to me as well. Preston, <laughs> Preston North End is one of the oldest football clubs or soccer teams, you'd say, in the U.S., founded in 1880. Um, one of the, the, the first team to win the Football League when that started uh, 130 years ago in 1888. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's my hometown. So it's uh, like the Cincinnati Redlands. Uh, I'm I'm very close to the club. I sponsor one of the players there, uh, Sean uh, McGuire, who uh, also plays for the uh, uh, Republic of Ireland's uh, national team. Very cool. Uh, that's Preston North End. And? And? You get a shirt. You get a Preston North End jersey with Keen on the back and a it's number great. three. Number three. And, From, this, and this was your ice hockey number. That was way back ice hockey uh, High number. school? High school. High school. That's are you going to wear this in the gym? I, I, <clears throat> John? Is, I'm, I'm looking at the size in it. They got, yeah, you, they got think, you an XL. Yeah, that's not... No? No. 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 Does it need to have a few no. more X's? Pat <laughs> <laughs> Carroll, be nice. Uh, it needs... Uh, yes, there needs to be a few I more think X's. You should is that the athletic cut? <laughs> Would I frame it? I think you should frame this. I, I think it's great. I, I think, think John you know, Riding and I should sign it. I should say that on the back of my chair at our world headquarters, I have from a, a, a wonderful fan up in Montreal, a generous fan, a real Montreal Canadiens jersey. Very And cool. that's where the number three comes from. The number three was a wonderful defenseman named J.C. Tremblay, who died way too long, young. 
Well, he was my hero when I was littler. Well, 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 you have a, a lot of uh, fans in, in Preston. And so that shirt came from the club. And obviously, yeah, well, if thank you, you find yourself in the northwest of England for right. some reason, uh, they would be more than happy to uh, uh, host you, well, at, thank a, you. Uh, at a match. Why, why support Manchester United or Liverpool when you can support Preston? Exactly. I mean, uh, you know. Is this Tom's new club? Because it was West Ham. Live from the Preston North End interactive studio. Yes, we could do that. We, <laughs> we could do we that. Could, Good morning, go interactive brokers. I could we see could, a tie we, in we, there. Could, we could go over to the UK and do the show from yeah. there. What happens in football this weekend? I mean, there's a small World Series game out in LA. Haley from Rodeo Drive just emails in, says, yeah, I looked at the weather, 75 degrees. It's like, hey, Pat Carroll, they're not going to be freezing at Fenway Park, are they? They, they won't be needing heaters <laughs> like they had the other night in the yeah. dugout. You okay over there? No, I, just, I was just looking at what reaching for my you paperwork really here. exciting. I, I am very excited, but I think a lot going on. What happens? Oh, well, let me do this, and we'll come back and talk about John's viewing habits for Saturday in Premier League. John Riding, thank you, as always, for your wisdom on economics and guiding me towards Preston uh, North End. Well, we would like to welcome Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan. He is joining us from Mexico City this morning. His district, of course, very tightly integrated with Mexico. But I've got to start uh, with the markets today, Mr. President. Uh, you've heard uh, over the last few minutes of where we are today, back down again. A lot of people are saying this is the Fed's fault. What do you make of what's been going on in markets lately? Well, uh, I'll avoid in this position commenting too much on market changes other than to say uh, some amount of volatility in the markets and up and down, I think, is typical. The, the one thing I would comment on is I watch earnings reports, and I talk to about 30 CEOs a month, and I think the story is consistent. Input costs are higher across the board, labor, materials, steel, aluminum, and I think companies are struggling for whether they can pass those increases on in price increases or whether they're facing margin erosion. And I see in the corporate earnings reports very consistent story from what I'm hearing from companies. Well, is there a level change, a percent move, or something that would cause you to believe that maybe the Fed should slow down, take a pause, not move in December? What I'm looking for is what impact uh, and what this all indicates about the strength of the underlying economy and, and also the impact on financial conditions. So it's not a market move up or down per se. It's, it's still uh, what is my outlook for the economy and what is my assessment of financial conditions uh, in the economy that might impact uh, future growth prospects. Well, if it's not you, if it's not the Fed, uh, some say it is a weaker outlook for growth, particularly with earnings going into 2019. A view that uh, yesterday new Vice Chairman Rich Clarida seemed to disagree with in his speech. Uh, have you changed your forecast in any way up or down going into 2019? So, Mike, as you know from our previous conversations, all year this year I've been saying 2018 was going to be a very strong year. We've got a substantial amount of fiscal stimulus, not just a tax agreement, but also the budget bill, which increased government spending. And we've been forecasting all year that 2019 growth would be weaker than 2018 and that 2020 would be a little bit weaker still as fiscal stimulus wears off. 
and we still got this headwind of an aging population and slowing workforce growth. So my, my outlook is pretty consistent, but I've been expecting some moderation of growth because I've been believing that the fiscal stimulus is going to wane as we head to the end of this year and into next year. One of the other big stories people have been talking about is, of course, Donald Trump's criticisms of Jay Powell and the Fed. Janet Yellen, very strong in the Financial Times today, saying uh, Trump does have the potential to undermine the Fed. How much should we worry about that? So uh, I think people outside the Fed, uh, as appropriate, should be or feel free to comment on this. I think in my position, I won't comment on it uh, other than to say my job is to do uh, economic analysis and make judgments on monetary policy without regard to political considerations or political influence. And I think criticism comes with the territory. So I think my mission uh, and our mission at the Fed is the same. Well, are you being set up for, uh, to be the fall guy for uh, any kind of economic shortfall? So, so I, I think it's very important that I not worry about that. Uh, I, I think we're in a very challenging situation that you and I have talked about before. We've got uh, healthy growth in the United States, but fiscal stimulus is part of that growth. Uh, it's going to wane in 19 and 20, and the, and the trick is how to get the judgment and the balance right uh, between moving toward a neutral stance but avoiding being predetermined or rigid in, in where, what that destination ultimately is and the pace of it. And so I think that's still the challenge, and that's, a, that's complicated enough with worry, without me worrying about other extraneous factors. Well, let's talk about the Beige Book. Suggests a lot of concern about tariffs in the American business. Yeah. Uh, what impact are you seeing or forecasting? So it's unusual for me to talk to a CEO that has not seen cost increases pretty much across the board. Labor costs, materials, uh, it's, it's typical. The only question CEOs have is, is can they pass those increases on in terms of prices. In some industries, they are doing that. In other industries, given the dynamics of the industry, they can't. And I think the beige book is very consistent and so that's why if the tariff situation intensifies, my guess is input cost pressures are going to intensify also. Uh, and it's not having a big effect on headline GDP growth, but it's having a very big effect on companies and industries and their ability to manage uh, their costs. Well, can companies in your district raise prices? Depends on the industry. Uh, in certain industries, they can, and in particular, if it's a consumer-facing industry, uh, they may not have pricing power, and they, they may suffer margin erosion, and there's a whole range of consumer-facing industries, including, by the way, the home builders, who really aren't able, effectively, they're finding to pass on cost increases, and they're either going to see... Uh, uh, volume declines because of sticker shock on the part of the consumer, or they're going to have to find a way to, to moderate their costs because they just don't have pricing power. We're getting closer to the neutral rate. You've pegged it at like it's about 275 to 3%. Uh, how close are you to possibly making a policy mistake? So I, I've said that uh, the, the estimate of the neutral rate, it's a concept. It's imprecise, it's uncertain, it's part of the mosaic I look at, and I've said it could be 
It could be two and a half to three, two and three quarters. It could be two and three quarters to three. We're going to have to make that judgment over the next year as, as uh, the economy unfolds. But to your point, uh, I'm very sensitive uh, to not being rigid or predetermined about the pace at which we get there. And the reason is, again, I expect GDP growth in 2018 to be strong, but I expect it to moderate as this fiscal stimulus starts to wane in 19 and 20, and we've still got to deal with the headwinds of slowing workforce growth due to aging and sluggish productivity. So I think getting this balance right is going to require me to keep an open mind, not be too predetermined or prejudge, and, uh, and so I think that's the challenge of this. And, uh, and so we'll have to make these judgments, and I will make these judgments as we head along this path. Well, speaking of judgments, effective Fed funds are again trading at the top of their range right at IOER right now, as they were in June. Uh, how much of a problem is that? And do you anticipate we will see in November or in December an adjustment to the IOER rate? So we'll have to see. Uh, it's always possible we'll have to make more technical adjustments. And part of what we're judging as we wind down the balance sheet is what is the demand for reserves in the banking system and in the economy. And, uh, and, and I think we're going to have to be open-minded to learning from this. There's no textbook on how you normalize interest rate policy uh, and wind down a balance sheet. And so I think it's critical to be open to learning. And I think we're doing that right here. And so it's possible we'll have to make more technical adjustments in the months ahead. Would that be something that could be done in November? Uh, we, we don't expect any kind of rate move because it's a non-press conference meeting, but something like that, would you feel free to approve uh, an IOER adjustment? I, I don't want to prejudge what we're going to do, but I, I think it's one of, one of the things that, yeah, I, I, I think it's important I keep an open mind in each meeting about, uh, about addressing this if it needs to be addressed. No Fed district. Uh, more closely tied to Mexico than yours. You are in Mexico City. Yeah. Give us a, a feel for what you think about uh, the incoming Mexican administration. What are you expecting in the economic relationship between the two countries? Well, uh, on the positive side, uh, I think it's been important for the United States and for both countries, for Mexico and the United States, to move forward getting an, uh, uh, the trade agreements in this hemisphere updated and resolved. And I think it removes an enormous uncertainty. But it also, and from our research at the Dallas Fed, improves U.S. competitiveness and allows us to add U.S. jobs. And so we're glad that's getting done. That's good for both countries. There's a lot of uncertainty about the privatization and modernization of this country and a lot of the reforms that have been done over the last five years. And I think the jury's still out as to whether those reforms will continue or whether they'll be put on hold or slow down. And that's the part we don't know. Uh, NAFTA 2.0, going to change anything? Uh, it'll, it'll create some changes. I think the most important thing about NAFTA 2.0 or the North American uh, Trade Agreement is that it's, it, it's going to get resolved. Uh, I think you could quibble about certain provisions, whether it's going to help improve U.S. competitiveness and our global competitiveness. But I think the most important headline is that removing the uncertainty is good for the United States and it's good for uh, Mexico. We talked about input costs uh, and global competitiveness. 
getting this agreement done is important to the United States because 70% of the imports from Mexico are intermediate goods, part of integrated supply chains and logistic arrangements that we think make the U.S. more competitive and allow the U.S. to add jobs. And so that part's the critical part. Back to rates for a moment. We have a, a question from a viewer. I, I wasn't strong enough in asking you about a potential pause. When you look at the interest rate sectors of the economy, autos and particularly housing and the impacts of uh, higher rates and even the lack of uh, tax deductions uh, in the high tax states, does that lead you to think maybe you've gone too far or you're getting really close to it? No. Listen, I watch housing very carefully, and I talk to home builders. We have a number in our district, and a, couple of, a number of national home builders do a lot of business in Texas because it's growing so fast. And you may know, uh, and we've been watching this closely at the Dallas Fed, new home sales in Dallas and Houston, which are two of the fastest-growing cities in the United States, new home sales have been sluggish. And, in fact, they've been weak. And so we're doing a lot of work at our district trying to understand how that slowing fits in with overall economic growth. And one of the conclusions I would come to is there's a, there's a, there, the input costs, labor shortages, higher input costs, and yes, higher mortgage rates are all part of the story. And so uh, we're watching this carefully. It's been weak for the last three months. Uh, I'm not ready to say that it's an indicator of the of a weakening in the economy, but I can tell you we're watching it very carefully. And again, it comes in the context of my own base case expectation that growth was going to weaken as we headed into 2019. So I'm just watching what this tells us, if anything, about uh, about the the trend in GDP growth. Uh, new Vice Chair Clarida is going to head yet another Fed subcommittee on communication. What can we expect? What's wrong with the way you communicate now, and how would you fix it? Well, I'm a, and I'm on that subcommittee uh, uh, with uh, Vice Chair Clarida. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't put it that there's something wrong. I think a good organization is constantly re-reviewing its communications, its frameworks, uh, the way it operates. I think that's healthy. Uh, and I think, uh, I think the Fed is moving toward doing that, and I would hope doing it on some regular basis. And, and I think that's wise. And as an, as, an, as an institution where it's critical that we keep our independence, I think part of keeping your independence is earning it by revisiting the way you conduct yourself, including communication and your frameworks. So I think us doing that is a good thing. Well, speaking of communication, in her FT interview, Janet Yellen talks about how there was internal dissent in the Open Market Committee over QE, a group calling itself the Three Amigos, which included Jay Powell, uh, worried that it would trigger financial instability. How united is the committee now on the policy path that now Chairman Powell has set? So there's debate around the committee, and I hope there will be debate. I think debate and disagreement is one of the things I've been very impressed by at the Federal Open Market Committee. And, and I, I don't think you want a situation where we all ag agree completely. Uh, and, and we've got uh, a number of us, I'll, I'll speak for myself, believe that we should be gradually and patiently moving toward a more neutral stance, meaning we don't need to have our foot on the accelerator. But not everybody agrees with that, and there's a lot of disagreement as to the pace and where neutral is. And I think that disagreement is healthy. And when I go to an FOMC meeting, I state my case and my arguments, but I listen very carefully 
to the others around the table. And, uh, and I'm open to being persuaded and changing my views. And I think that's a good dynamic, and I hope it continues. All right, Robert Kaplan, president of the Dallas Fed, coming to us today from our Mexico City Bureau. Nancy Cordes joins us. She is congressional correspondent for CBS. Nancy, the news flow is exceptionally volatile. Is there any reporting from CBS that these suspicious packages, these bombs, will affect the elections? I think uh, we don't have any reporting right now that would indicate that uh, these particular packages will affect the election one way or the other. I do know that they're sort of uh, gripping the country right now. Uh, we can now report that there is a, a 12th package uh, that has been discovered that was addressed to James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, um, consistent with the other packages. This one was in New York City. Uh, uh, we also uh, know that there's a package that um, uh, may have been sent to uh, another member of Congress that is being investigated. Uh, so this is an ongoing situation. There are sure to be many more developments before Face the Nation on Sunday. And uh, no, you mentioned sorry. John Dickerson hosting. He's no. going to be sitting down with um, the House Speaker, uh, Paul Ryan. He's also talking with uh, Chris Coons, Senator of Delaware. Um, and this is an ongoing situation. We know that the, uh, that the FBI is looking at one uh, post sorting facility in Opelika, Florida, where some of these packages may have uh, been processed and, and then sent on their way. But we don't think that that's the only facility they're looking at. Uh, could we just, uh, Nancy, could we just focus on the election for just a little bit longer and uh, get your sure. thoughts on what is going on in Texas? Uh, I know you've been following that race uh, because mm -hmm. of Representative Beto O'Rourke uh, mm -hmm. uh, trying to unseat Republican Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Yes, and I was in Texas earlier this week, uh, went to uh, a couple of O'Rourke events. He was trying to do some counter-programming because it was the same day that President Trump was coming into town to uh, campaign with Cruz. And so uh, he knew there was going to be a lot of attention to that. So uh, O'Rourke held uh, eight events of his own going uh, back and forth to different early voting sites and really drawing pretty remarkable crowds, taking pictures with uh, hundreds of people who lined up to, uh, to get a chance to meet him. So certainly there's a lot of energy surrounding his candidacy, whether there are enough voters uh, who, who share his views in the state of Texas to get him elected is still an open question. He's obviously trailing in the polls. Um, there was a, a great deal of enthusiasm surrounding President Trump's visit as well. You know, I was there watching this line of thousands of people snaking for hours as they tried to get in to see the president of the United States. Uh, this is a state that the president won by nine points. Um, and uh, and Ted Cruz, uh, there's no question, has an advantage there. But we're yeah. seeing interesting early voting numbers. Obviously, this is a race that has really energized the electorate there. Well, you know, uh, I'm sure you saw the reports in the Houston Chronicle earlier in the week saying that, quote, a shocking number of people turned out to vote on yep. Monday. They said mm -hmm. it looked like uh, more like a Black Friday shopping morning then right. it did a lineup for a vote it shattered early voting records uh, for a midterm election in in texas not just in houston but across the state and but uh you know it's 
you have to be careful about drawing conclusions uh, from early voting because sometimes all that means is that one side is very energized and they do a lot of their voting in early voting and there aren't that many people left yeah. to cast a ballot in the general election. Uh, it could also be that all the really enthusiastic people come out at the right. very beginning of early voting and then there's less, yeah. uh, there's less at the end. So uh, it, is a, it is a noteworthy phenomenon and we're keeping an eye on it, but it's too soon to say what it means yeah. for that race. Nancy, thank Thanks for the briefing. Nancy Cordes with an incredible news flow. She is the chief congressional correspondent at CBS. to say now for the Trump administration's views on the GDP report. We're joined now on Bloomberg Television and on radio by Mick Mulvaney, U.S. Office and Management and Budget Director. Hey, Mick, it's great to catch up with you again. Thanks for joining the program. Let's start with that it's GDP number. Thanks. Let's start with That's... that GDP number, shall we? Um, it looks solid. And everyone's asking the same question, Mick, so I'll ask it of you. Is it sustainable? Yeah, uh, we really do think that it is. Again, you look at some of the, the technicals, you get down deep in the numbers. This is a sustainable uh, growth uh, cycle that we are in. It's a supply-driven growth cycle that we're in. And uh, one of the things that we draw attention to, or try to draw attention to today, is how, how mild the inflation numbers were and what came out this morning, 1.6%, well below what people expected, but not what we expected here at the White House. We've been telling people for the last year that this is a different type of demand, a different type of growth cycle driven by the supply in the market, which would typically put less pressure on inflation. So we really do feel like we're in that, that Goldilocks moment where we're, we're getting good GDP growth, uh, but we don't have the inflation that traditionally you might have seen with this type of market. Um, maybe it takes pressure off of the Fed to raise rates, as they've indicated they, they want to do. So um, all things seem to be uh, pointing in the right direction right now. And this is a group of economists on Wall Street, Mick, that I speak to every day that just don't believe this story carries on into 2019. I'm looking at the projections from the median projection of the economists we track here at Bloomberg on the street. And the expectation is that GDP slows to 2.5% in 2019. Where are you on that, Mick, and how big's the spread? Sure. We still, our projections are still roughly in that 3% uh, 3% range for the next couple of years. We do think that is, that's uh, that's sustainable. Keep in mind, and I don't know who you're talking to, but a lot of folks are just heavily invested in seeing that number not come in at 3%, especially folks who are tied to the previous administration wanted you and me to believe that 1.9% was the best you could do forever. Uh, keep in mind, Paul Krugman said one time, I think that you could make him complete dictator of the country, and he couldn't get you up at a couple tenths of a percentage point. Um, no, there's a lot of folks who who, again, missed this time. The 3.5% is higher than a lot of folks expected. That inflation number is lower than a lot of, of folks expected. But again, at the administration, it's right where we thought we would be, given the policies we put in place over the first seven quarters. So, Mick, right where we thought we would be on GDP, the economies are booming. We can't argue against that. Tax revenue essentially flat in fiscal 2018. Why? Well, tax revenue is flat. It's up a little bit. We still took in record uh, revenues last year. It's down on the corporate side, which you would expect given the, the lower rates at the beginning of the of the dynamism that would come from a, uh, from a tax cut. But individual tax receipts uh, set all-time records. Keep in mind that the, the budget deficit that we rolled out, at, I think it was uh, 780 uh, a couple of weeks ago, was actually $70 billion less than the Congressional Budget Office estimated as recently as, I think, June or July in the summertime. So revenues continue to, to, to sort of meet our expectations. It's the spending side of the 
ledger right now that's driving a lot of uh, the, that deficit, all of that deficit actually, um, and it's the discretionary part of, of that spending that's contributing greatly to that. One of the reasons you saw the president uh, speak so strongly about reducing discretionary spending at the cabinet meeting last week. So yeah, no, the deficit's a problem, but the revenues really are not what's uh, what's leading us down that, that deficit path right now. It's the spending side of the ledger. Many people might sit here and say, well, that's rich, and this is just a classic example of politicizing the deficit and making it about spending. It's pretty clear that income, tax receipts aren't coming up outside of the uh, consumer income side of the agenda. What do you say back to that? Uh, that's going to take some time for those those tax cuts in the corporate tax cuts to sort of to kick in. When you lower corporate rates from 35% to 21%, yeah, in the first couple of quarters, receipts are going to be less than you expected. But all of our projections long-term are that when you get to year 7, 8, 9, 10, and then outside of what we call the budget window, and in D.C. we budget by 10-year in increments, outside of the budget window, you're talking about corporate receipts that far exceed what we expected before the tax cut. So, yeah, we did expect corporate rates, corporate collections to come down. That's exactly what happened. But again, all of the money that comes in, and again, to us, a dollar is a dollar, whether we take it from you or your employer, money to us is just a dollar. Um, those receipts are at all-time highs. Is the Republican Party still the party of fiscal responsibility, Mick? Yeah, well, well, we'll find out. It's certainly the president of fiscal responsibility. That's why you saw him unveil the, the nickel plan, which was his idea, by the way. It was not uh, not me pushing that on him. He understands the, the, the import of the deficit. He understands that the import of the discretionary side of the ledger. So when he sat down last week with the cabinet and said, look, everybody's got to cut 5% from last year, he was deadly serious. So uh, as far as the president's concerned, yeah, he's still very fiscally responsible. We encourage Congress, uh, when they get back after the election, to follow that lead. Well, let's talk about the cut to spending, shall we? Each agency, 5%. Does that include uh, defense spending as well, Meg? It does, actually. I think the number, he actually set the number for defense at $700 billion, which is about a 2.5% reduction for defense. So I think he's treating that slightly separately. But again, everyone will do more with less than they had last year in our budget. Um, also, you might see some agencies, State Department, for example, education, um, actually have reductions that exceed 5%. So no, the president uh, has spending uh, in his mind, and it is a focus of his right now, and you're going to see that trickle down through the budgets from the various cabinet agencies. I just wonder whether that's going to be enough. I'm looking at interest payments of 500 billion plus. I'm looking at a deficit of 780 billion and most people expect those numbers to get worse, not better. Yeah, well, and certainly uh, we're very cognizant of what happens with interest rates because we're the largest borrower in the world. So interest rates go up. We're very interest rate sensitive. I think that $500 billion number doesn't kick in for a couple years out. I think we're someplace in the in the low threes this year. But uh, uh, but you're right. We're, we are getting in that direction. Yes, we are absolutely concerned about it, which is one of the reasons the president's, I think the last three budgets or the last two budgets the president uh, offered us some of the greatest, uh, broadest spending reductions ever. Keep in mind, if Congress had passed our budget two years ago, we'd be well on our way to a balanced budget. We didn't do that. Congress chose not to do that. That's fine. Um, they have a chance now to put this 5% reduction in place uh, beginning with this year's spending plan. So it's slightly confusing to a lot of people that in the same week we talk about fiscal responsibility and cutting spending by 5%, we're also talking about another tax cut. Can you make sense of that for us? Sure. I think the president really wants to do more, even more, for the middle class. Um, the, the tax cuts uh, and reform package that we passed last year was a huge boon to the middle class, especially in terms of things like the child care tax credit. But if the president can figure out a way in a fiscally responsible manner to, uh, to give another 10 percent uh, reduction to the middle class, um, that's good for the economy. It's good for people. It helps build on what we've seen, which is house home take home pay is up dramatically. I think uh, it's up like 3 percent in the last seven quarters, and that's on a real 
basis. Um, so uh, the lower taxes of the middle class raise their wages, raise their bonuses, um, and it just helps build the middle class, which, you know, means a lot to the president. But isn't the tacit admission from this administration that we can't afford it? I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. Isn't the tacit admission by this administration that we can't afford another tax cut in America? No, no, no. I, and, um, and you and I, I think have talked about this before in terms of bi there being different types of deficits. There's some deficits that come from wealth transfer payments, which don't contribute very much to growth. There's deficits that might come, for example, by gov from government investment and things like infrastructure research that has some return on that investment. And there's, there's the tax, the deficits that come from letting you and me and everybody watching this program keep more of their own money through tax reductions. That's the most efficient allocation of resource. We do think that's the, help, the thing that helps us grow the economy. And again, we've been right. So everybody who says you couldn't do this, uh, now you should be asking them the question, why is it that you were wrong and Trump was right? We've got the 3% you didn't say was achievable. It looks like you'll have it for at least the next couple of quarters. What, what, what was wrong with what uh, those folks said coming into this administration uh, that uh, we were able to, 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 to prove right on? Mick, I agree with you. Many economists said we couldn't get to 3. We got to 3. In fact, we had a 4 handle in the previous quarter. I think where many people will disagree with you is that it's come with a big price. It's come with a much, much bigger fiscal deficit. And the spending plans that we've heard this week just won't touch the sides. Um, again, this, the spending plans that we roll out, I think, are fiscally responsible. Um, so, again, keep in mind, who spends the money? Congress spends the money. That's the way the Constitution works. We can send our budgets to the Hill, and we have done that for the last two years, do it again this year. Uh, we'd like Congress to pay closer attention to it. And now that I think everybody knows, um, people don't realize this, but if you watched the Cabinet meeting last week, you saw the President talk about it in public. But as soon as the door closed, ordinarily that would be when the President turns to me and says, Mick, tell us about the budget. Uh, he didn't do that this year. The President talked about this himself for 20 minutes. In fact, I didn't say a word. This is the president's idea. The president now has spending in his sights, and we are going to uh, bring the full force of the administration behind getting some fiscal responsibility. Keep in mind, how we did so well with the budget back in the 1990s was we didn't really cut spending. We grew the economy in the late 1990s and had fiscal restraint. Revenues grew faster than expenses. That's what we're trying to get back to. So, Mick, it just seems to me that we're going back to the old politics, that what's going to happen after the midterms is the classic argument, the classic blame game between the Democrats and the Republicans, just not to deal with what's in front of them right now, which is a debt problem. Um, again, the, the political uh, atmosphere here is pretty hyperpartisan. There's, there's no question about that. I don't think I'm making news when I say that. I would be curious to see what gets done in the lame duck. All I can say to your answers on spending, though, is I think the president has laid down the marker. The president said, look, I want, I want a 5% across-the-board reduction. I want defense even to do less or do more with less than they had last year. I don't know how the, any president of the United States could, st could, spend a, could send a stronger fiscally conservative message. Hey, Mick, it's always great to catch up with you. Thanks for dropping by. And a busy morning for you guys, I'm sure and some solid numbers for the U.S. economy once again in the previous quarter. Thank you very much, Mick. Mick Volvaney, the U.S. Office of, Budget, uh, Office of Management and Budget Director, joining us from outside the White House. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.